Well, the forecasters didn't see it coming until the last minute, but Laura finally got her snowfall in January. Genuine, plowable snow that you could play in. I'm sure she will tell us how much fun she had. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura, as well as Lisa Garvin and Layla Tassi. And Laura, were you overjoyed by the beautiful snow? I was. It was so fun. Even my 12-year-old who like would rather be playing video games than just about anything else was like, I'm going to go play outside. I was like, okay, let's all go play outside. <laughs> so we put on the snow pants. We made a snowman. We had a snowball fight. The dog was super happy. There was sledding involved. I mean, it was just, it, it was the perfect snow because it wasn't super cold and it was packing snow. And then it stuck to all the trees. So it was incredibly beautiful. And then it wasn't like the roads weren't awful in my side of town. So A plus snowfall. This, this isn't the kind of snow you want for skiing though, right? Because it's so packable, it turns into ice. You like powder for that. Well, I mean, I think that'd be great, but at this point they will take any kind of snow. <laughs> I, I did not ski yesterday. I skied Saturday. Um, and there's still enough snow you can ski at Boston Mills. So um, no complaints there. All right, let's begin. How many Cuyahoga County suburbs are killing deer these days to abate what some see as a nuisance? Laura, Pete Krause did a census of the communities doing it. This has really expanded since the days when Solon was so controversial with sharpshooters. Right. There are a dozen now, plus the National Park and the Metro Parks. And that's what got us started on the story looking into it. I got a text from my town saying the Metro Parks would be closing areas while they killed deer in the Rocky River Reservation. But this is actually much less controversial than when I started editing communities in 2013. A decade ago, it was just Solon. And I remember in Lindhurst started doing it. It was was huge uh, meetings, public meetings, and people out in arms. And now it's pretty much understood more so on the east side even than the west side but it's shaker heights and beechwood they're working together south euclid bay village highland heights richmond heights lindhurst north olmstead bedford westlake and parma heights and uh while some people we had this discussion in the newsroom would like to sterilize deer that has proved less efficient more expensive and really not solving the problem long term yeah, I know that you want the deer out of your yard, but I th- I just don't feel like people are examining this. We have pushed the deer out of their natural habitat. They have smartly adapted to living among us in the suburbs, and now we're hiring sharpshooters to kill them. It just seems like that's the wrong way to go. But, but they also- have, go ahead, they have no natural predators. Lindhurst, the last deer census in 2021, there were <laughs> 73 deer per square mile. 73. And the census they did the year before that, it was 72 deer per square mile. So it just got worse. I I know I'm in the minority in this podcast because I kind of like seeing them on the street. But I, it's just the sharpshooters in the neighborhood. These are densely packed neighborhoods. That doesn't give you pause, Lisa. Well, actually, there was a Facebook post on the Lindhurst group page. There was like a bloody patch in somebody's backyard and some drag marks. They never saw the carcass, but obviously it was a deer that maybe didn't get a fatal shot and they had to chase it into somebody's yard. So, yeah, everybody freaked out about that. 
I think for the most part, this is really safe. These are professionals. You're not just like letting some rando with a gun or a bow come hunt in your backyard. And for the most part, people don't even know it's happening. I think Pete talked to some places where some places put up signs, others don't because they actually don't want to attract attention. That would be even more dangerous. Uh, they do give the food, either the venison to food banks. I understand what you're, you're saying, Chris. I'm not in favor of just like mass killing of animals, but it does seem that there are too many deer. And like Lisa said, there are no natural predators. We're not having, you know, mountain lions hunt them. And I get that they've learned to survive, but they learned to survive by eating everybody's plants. Yeah, I know. But we're the ones that squeeze them out of where they live. You know, But there's I, I more think... of them than there used to be, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not just squeezing them out. It's a, it's a greater population because they don't have the natural predators. And we used to kill them for food when, you know, back in the pioneer days. Mm -hmm. So let me ask this. Regularly on Facebook, people post, hey, I think I just heard gunshots outside and we've all chalked it up to gun violence, but it could be deer sharpshooters and we just don't know. I don't know if they use silencers or not. That's a good question. On a rifle? I don't know. <laughs> you know, Can personally, you? I, I just want to say, so I live in Bay Village where we have, I think, a love-hate relationship with the deer. I mean, they're beautiful. This morning I looked out with all the snow and was like, oh, beautiful deer. And then six months from now, I'll be cursing them when they're eating my hostas. But I feel like they need to experiment a little bit more with the immunocontraception. I, I was just kind of dissatisfied by seeing the, you know, the line in the story that Cleveland Metro Parks investigated the use of it from 2001 to 2006 and then abandoned it. A, a deer's lifespan is like 20 years or something like that. You have to kind of, you know, observe the long term effect of it. How do you know if it's working or not? We, we've only, you know, looked at it for five years. Well, what's interesting is I didn't realize the immunocontraception only lasts for two or three years. So you got to keep hitting these deers every every couple of years. But what's interesting is South Euclid is the only one experimenting with sterilization at this mm -hmm. point. So what they do is they like shoot the deer with a, you know, tranquilizer, put them in the back of a truck, take them to their city service garage and sterilize them and then take them back like this is a labor-intensive process I, it's not like you can just shoot a dart and like you're done yeah, so um they have to be stitched back up and everything so and tagged um and tagged so but what is really clear layla is that you can't just like have bay village doing it and not rocky river right these deer are not like oh can't go into that town i'm supposed to stay here if you don't have a coordinated effort i don't know that we're ever going to really see a difference. Mm -hmm. Layla, are you sure about that lifespan? I thought the lifespan was like six years. I am telling you, we have one deer in our neighborhood that is the mascot of this neighborhood. She has three legs and she's been here the entire time. We've been here almost 11 years and she, she's, she predates us. You got to so, tell everybody what that deer's name is. Peggy. <laughs> Everyone in our neighborhood knows Peggy. And she has so many offspring because I suspect she can't really get away from the bucks, but <laughs> she can't escape them. Well, according to the uh, Wildlife Illinois, the average lifespan is five and a half years for a female, two and a half years for a male. But the oldest male was nine. And in a study, the oldest woman or woman, female was 18. So obviously, that's just one study. But I guess they don't live as long as I thought. All right. Well, I do believe, Lisa and Layla, we will have an editorial board roundtable about this this week. Mm -hmm. So you'll be able to vent <laughs> some more. It's Today in Ohio. 
Now that we've had a couple of months to think about it, what are the long-term ramifications of putting party affiliations on the ballot for Ohio Supreme Court races? Lisa Laura Hancock did a deep dive on this one. I have to love the quote from former Ohio Democratic Party Chair David Pepper. He says, the days of Irish surnames are over. And he's probably right about that. Also, name recognition, it probably won't mean as much now that uh, party affiliations have appeared on the ballot for Supreme Court races. So, and it was an interesting, the number of people who voted in Supreme Court races back in November, nearly matched the total number of votes cast. So we had 4.2 million votes cast overall in Ohio, 4.1 million of them had Supreme Court votes on the ballot. This hasn't happened since 2010 and possibly never in Ohio Supreme Court races, which are usually way down at the bottom of the ballot. And this time with the party affiliation, these races were moved higher up on the ballot and that may have had a difference as well. So tip right now, Ohio trends 50 54% Republican and 46% Democrat. That's been since about 2012. In the November election, it seemed like the results mirrored the actual party proportionality in in Ohio. Uh, Republican uh, race, Republican Supreme Court candidates got 56, 57% of the vote. Democrats got 43 and 44%. So that kind of mirrors, you know, our, our statewide voting patterns. Democrats really uh, opposed putting the party affiliations on because they suspected this would happen, but it seemed like a false way to go. If, If people want that information, we should give them the information. If they want to vote the party line, they have the right to do that. So I'd never quite understood the opposition to it. What's odd is, though, it's just for the Supreme Court, right? Regular judges, we still don't see party affiliations. Th- that is correct. And they are also way down the ballot where they have been, you know, before. And of course, the Republicans have the most to gain with the, the party on the ballot. They said they wanted to do this because they wanted to increase voter participation. And that actually did happen. But uh, Executive Director of Common Cause Ohio, Catherine Terser, says, you know, we really want our judges to be impartial. And she said, quote, putting a label on the ballot seems a bridge too far. But she was glad that these very critical races have been moved up on the ballot. But they I got to agree with Catherine Terser there. Like, I don't want a judge that just votes a party line. Like, I want a judge that looks at the case and knows the law and makes the best decision. But, but this is but, Ohio. But they do run in parties. And if the voters want to know what party they're in, why should you deny it? We're the transparency people. We're supposed to advocate for transparency. I, what's worse, voting by Irish and Italian names or voting by party? It's neither. In neither case are they investigating who the candidates are and what they might do. They're just voting for the, the party. So we should remind everybody about judge for yourself, right, where you can get a little bit impartial information about judges on your ballots. It's today in Ohio. Opening statements come today in the trial of former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder. Layla, whose testimony do we most anticipate? Yeah, they've they've seated the jury. They're ready to roll. Andrew Tobias uh, tells us that the potential witnesses could include a who's who of notable figures in Columbus government and, and lobbying circles. Attorney General Dave Yost and two former state lawmakers, Dave Greenspan of Westlake and Kyle Kohler of Springfield, have both said that they expect to be called to the stand. 
And federal prosecutors also have said that they will call two co-defendants as witnesses, Jeff Longstreth, who was Householder's former, his top political aide, and, and Juan Caspides, another Columbus lobbyist. In October of 2020, both of these guys pleaded guilty to one count of racketeering. Longstreth was uh a political strategist for Householder, running campaigns for a slate of candidates that would vote Householder as speaker. And according to the prosecution, he controlled the bank accounts that sent and received First Energy's money. Prosecutors say he earned more than $5 million in his role. And Caspides worked as a lobbyist and, and lead consultant for First Energy Solutions on HB6, tracking Householder's slate of candidates. And he allegedly received $600,000 from accounts controlled by the conspirators and $227,000 from First Energy. So opening statements will likely be underway by the time this podcast is published. And reporter Jake Zuckerman was following jury selection on Friday. And I just love the story that he wrote detailing the questions that both sets of lawyers asked the prospective jurors and which ones were struck from the panel. It's a great peek behind the curtain for anyone who's fascinated by this case. It'll be interesting to see whether Larry Householder himself takes the stand. I was think I was wondering that myself. I mean, what's it got to lose? Burn well, it all, man. Get out there. <laughs> lawyers often try to dissuade people from doing that, but he's kind of full of juice. He may decide I'm doing it anyway. I'll win over the jurors myself. Didn't work with his colleagues in the legislature when he tried to get them not to kick him out, but it uh, might work with the jury. Fun stuff. We'll have a couple of people down there on days like today where we think a lot will happen with a lot of updates through the day on the more technical parts. It'll just be Jake. It's today in Ohio. A track coach at Maple Heights High School is the official Ultimate Guy 2023 for Men's Health Magazine. He's on the cover, Laura. Who is he? Yeah, I love this title. Not not man of the year, but ultimate guy. His name is Corwin Collier. He's an Army veteran, a 41-year-old partial amputee who lives in Stowe, and he uh, coaches track at Maple Heights, his alma mater, and he is on the January-February cover of Men's Health. So he has survived a lot of adversity in his life. In 2009 in Iraq, a bomb exploded under the patrol truck he was in. He was in the National Guard. He was pinned, and uh, it it hit, hit his right leg and mangled his right hand. He went into cardiac arrest, he spent 10 months in the hospital, lost the fingers on his right hand, much of his right leg. And he had used to define himself based on his athletic skills. He was an all-American college athlete, but he ended up losing 70 pounds while he was in the hospital and he was an amputee. So he had to rethink the role that fitness played in his life and his definition of being a man. He also had to overcome depression. He started his master's in education. And a couple years later, he became the first wounded or partial amputee veteran to have played, obtain a pro card with the International Federation of Bodybuilding and Fitness. So, I mean, that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, it, it was just neat that it was a, a local guy. I mean, we don't get to see a lot of national role models in Cleveland. And it was <laughs> just great to, to see it. It's on the February cover, right? So it's this yep. month. People yep. will see him. It, it should be in there for, uh, you know, if you're going to the newsstand, you'll see him. He's a father of three. Malachi is 18, Corwin 15, and Aaron 11. So, I mean, think about that. He's doing all of this while he's raising three kids with his wife. And the editor-in-chief, 
Richard Dormant said in a news release that it is, he's pretty much everything they're trying to do at Men's Health every single day, get people to push themselves mentally and physically so they can be the best version of themselves. There's nobody we talk to across America who better exemplifies that than this guy. So he is a guy, the ultimate guy. And I love the quote that ended the story from this guy. You get a mind, a body, and a lifetime. What you do with the first two determines the last one. Oh, that is great. Yeah, we're hoping we'll get a chance to sit down and talk to him. We based the story mostly on the article, but uh, I hope we get to follow up. It is Today in Ohio. Do we have a Netflix series in the making and a lawsuit filed by one heiress against another heiress to the Covelli family fortune in Youngstown? Lisa, you get the most fascinating gossipy story of the day. What's going on here? Yeah, I'm already hearing, you know, the lifetime script being written in my head for this. So Arthur Cavelli of Youngstown, he's the former owner of a, one of the largest McDonald's franchises in the country. He died back in 2014 and he set up a trust fund for his daughter, Annette Ford, who now lives in Florida, and his granddaughter, Ford's daughter, Lauren DeVoe. Well, Lauren DeVoe filed a federal lawsuit against her mom and a co-trustee, Cleveland attorney Jennifer Savage. They, he, she is seeking their removal as trustees and she wants to get the full amount of the trust awarded to her in a lump sum. It's currently worth about $375,000 a year. That's what she's getting in uh, you know, monthly payments. And DeVoe accuses her mother of changing the trust after Albert Covelli died because she thought she was going to get a lump sum at 35, but it was changed to weekly payments. And she said, this is her vengeful mother getting back at her for leaving her husband, Chris, and taking up with another man while she was married. So um, this affair happened in 2020. She separated from her husband the next year. They have six kids together. And so uh, she and the new boyfriend put a contract on a home in Needham, and they wanted the trust for a down payment on this home. Well, they were refused, and she says that her mother was being vengeful, disapproved of her boyfriend, well, and go ahead. Well, and, and the, the, I'm, I'm hoping you have the quotes in hand of what she says the mother sent to her, a yes. mother to her daughter. Yes. On May 14th, she texted her daughter and said, you are dead to me. I hope Chris, her husband, takes you to the cleaners. The whole family is on his side, and then neither of you better mess with me. Yeah, I, I, it gets back. I don't know what happened there, but it's one of those where if you have a sip of wine, don't write text messages. They will come back to haunt you. I can't believe you'd write that to your own child, but yeah, this is a wild one. It's Today in Ohio. What does our Saving You Money columnist Sean McDonald make of the many, many, many promotions offering what sounds like gambling without risk? Layla, sports gambling is now ubiquitous. Everywhere you go, including in our platforms, you're seeing advertisements for it. What does Sean say about all these, these companies that basically make it sound like you can gamble without risk? Yeah, he does a really good job of breaking down exactly what these promotions are trying to hook you on. He says that many of them involve bonus bets or some sort of betting credits. They aren't real cash. You can't withdraw them from your account. You need to place bets and win to turn this credit into real money. And in most cases, when you use your bonus bet, you you only keep the winnings. You won't keep the credits that you gambled with. So for example, if you won 50 bucks when you were betting with cash, you keep that full amount and the amount you won. But with a bonus bet, you keep only your winnings and you lose the credit. So 
He tells us that there are a few variations on that model. One of them is bet and gets. You you place a bet and in return you get betting credit. So for example, bet five bucks in real money and whether you win or lose, you would get, for example, $200 in betting credits. And then there are deposit bonuses. You deposit real money, $100, for example, and get $100 of extra betting credits. So you've theoretically doubled the money that you have to gamble with. And there are many variations of rules that go along with this and how you can use your bonus bets. Some betting apps require a certain number of bets before you can unlock your bonuses. And then there are bonus bets. These are the ones sometimes wrongly called risk-free bets. You bet a set amount of money, $100, for example. If you win, cool. But if you lose, you get $100 in betting credits. So you get a second chance. And that sounds good. But Sean shared the story of how this blew up in one better's face. This this guy bet $500 and lost it, but then got $500 credits. So he used it to place a bunch of $25 bets with really good odds. And on a normal $25 bet, if he won... He would end up with $33.33. That's $25 plus the winnings. But with a bonus bet, he'd only get back $8.33 because you lose the credit. He didn't know that he only got to keep the winnings when betting with credits. And in the long run, he ended up losing money. And that's why that whole risk-free promotion is a bunch of garbage. And Sean ended up using the bet and get model to place his experimental bet for this for the story. And he did end up winning a hundred bucks of real money. He withdrew it immediately to stave off the temptation to keep wagering. But the bottom line of his story is, you know, do your homework before you jump into sports betting. Being a sports fan is not the same as being good at sports gambling and practice with fake money before you wager your real money. Apparently there are apps where you can actually wager with tokens instead of cash. So I really found this story to be very instructive because I don't know anything about this industry and and uh, he did a good job breaking it down. Yeah, we should point out that it is actually illegal in Ohio to advertise risk-free gambling. So mm-hmm. they, they advertise it as no sweat gambling or something. The, the From their standpoint, what they're trying to do is get people like you who have no idea how to gamble on sports to do it with, with as little of your own money in at first as possible. But but it is you it can be misleading and that's why his story was so important what i do wonder is every one of these things has a disclaimer everything on our site has a disclaimer if you have any kind of issue call these numbers and you can get gambling counseling but this is the first time ever that you can sit in your house and gamble from your iphone in the past you would have to go proactively go buy a lottery ticket go to the bar and play keno and now you can just sit with the betting device in your lap no matter where you are and i wonder what this does to problem gambling Mm -hmm. well and i also wonder what is i've always wondered what that hotline actually is if you call what kind of service is there for you we should we should look at that, right? Yeah, well, we need to look at it. And then once this has been in place for a little while, try and assess how much the, the problem gambling has increased. There are probably people that have no idea that they can easily become addicted who might take advantage of these offers and, unlike Sean, not pull their money out, but go ahead and recycle and recycle, and then they can lose everything. It's a, it's a very interesting time in Ohio. Uh, a lot of unknowns as yet. Ohio very quickly became one of the 
the highest ranked states for sports betting when it turned on the spigot on January 1st. I should disclose, as we always do, we have a partnership with a sports betting firm and is providing some revenue by advertising to our audience. It's today in Ohio. Who is the new head of University Circle Incorporated and where does she come from, Laura? Kate Borders. She's a nationally recognized leader in urban development, and she is from Tempe, Arizona. She's going to replace interim president Gary Hansen. He's the former executive director of the Cleveland Orchestra. Obviously, he's been in interim since longtime president Chris Ronane stepped down to run for Cuyahoga County Executive. That was in uh, October 2021. So he's been filling in for quite a while. But Borders actually has some Midwestern ties. She's served as the president of, sorry, she got a bachelor's degree from the University of Arizona, Master of Arts Administration from Columbia College in Chicago. And she has worked for both the uh, East Town Association in Milwaukee and the Peoria Art Guild in Illinois. So at least Cleveland is bigger than Peoria. <laughs> but she's she's been well regarded for the work that she's been able to do. So it's going to be some fresh perspective. She starts June 12th. I think it's interesting they waited this long to do it. I wonder if they kept it open just in case Chris Ronane lost his bid for county executive and they'd bring him back. That is a really good question. I don't think they would probably say that on the record, but yeah, they kept it. All, if, if Weingart had won, then I guess he would have needed a job. I'm curious about what has happened in Tempe during her period there and if they've had the similar kind of success University Circle has had since the, under Chris Ronane. And Tempe, Arizona is not one of the the big the bigger cities you talk about in Arizona, Phoenix and Tucson. So I'm curious about no, what's but going I, on there. I guess she worked with the city leaders, the merchants, property owners, and Arizona State University to uh, spur renewal in the city's downtown. So university university circle i don't know i mean obviously she's not in charge of the entire city in cleveland she's in a very specific very successful area with a lot of growth between the hospitals and the university so i mean her and a lot of arts institutions right all the museums so what she's done in the past seems to mesh well with what their you know focus is in university circle well, she's also will be in charge of a police department that has a record of discriminating where it gives way more tickets to black people than it does to white people. And if she doesn't have any experience with running a police department, that's no. going to be an interesting challenge for her. Hopefully she will hire or work with some smart people who will give her the rundown. It's today in Ohio. Now that Parma has been humiliated nationally for wrongfully prosecuting a resident who created a fake Facebook page that pilloried the police department, how are the Parma lawyers doing the dance to get the U.S. Supreme Court to reject the resident's lawsuit for damages for their prosecution of him? Lisa, this is a case that The Onion has has put in a, uh, an amicus brief to, to talk about the value of satire. It's a big national story. What is Parma doing to get out of it? And it's going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And as a matter of fact, the Supreme Court is going to consider whether they're going to take this case of Parma resident Andrew Novak. He was arrested and prosecuted by Parma PD back in 2016. He created a Parma Police Department Facebook page, a fake one, where he just basically skewered the department and the people who work there. But Parma attorneys in a filing to the Supreme Court said, 
it's this is a textbook case of qualified immunity. This allows government officials like police to avoid being sued for violating rights while on the job, but Ohio law allows litigation to proceed if the actions are considered outside the scope of their duties or if they acted in malice. So Novak's Facebook page was up less than 24 hours back in 2016. He had fewer than 100 followers before it was taken down. Several people called 911 to report it. He was arrested. He spent four days in jail. He went to trial, but he was later acquitted. So he filed a lawsuit um, that failed, and his attorneys have urged the Supreme Court of the United States to consider the case, which is what they're going to do. And they could make their decision about whether to take it up as early as middle of next month. What is it with police departments in Northeast Ohio? We got this ridiculous action. And now in Beachwood, we have the city filing a lawsuit, trying to figure out who has been criticizing a police chief, which a former law director of Cleveland says is flat out a violation of the First Amendment. We need to do more exploration. I just don't get it. I mean, you're allowed to criticize government. You're allowed to have Facebook pages that pillory the leaders. And this is what authoritarian governments do to try and stop criticism. It's such a bad look for Parma. Yeah. And, you know, Novak's attorney is Patrick Giacomo. He's with the Institute for Justice. And as you said, several national groups and people have come to Novak's aid on this. And Giacomo is saying the qualified immunity argument is ridiculous. He said they're completely ignoring the First Amendment in this argument. It is ridiculous. You can't you can't abuse people this way. I, I I it'll be interesting to see whether this Supreme Court agrees or whether this Supreme Court more or less believes in authoritarian government. But what Parma did here was completely out of line. And is anybody holding the, the elected leaders accountable for that? Has there ever been an apology? Has there ever been an admission that they went way beyond what they should have been what they should have done? I don't Sounds think so. like they're doubling down, actually. Yeah, like they are in Beechwood. Two suburbs on either side of town where the police are basically trying to abuse the citizenry. Not a good look. It's today in Ohio. That does it for the Monday episode. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Tuesday talking about the news. 